I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 153 of the podcast, everybody, with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, who is sat next to me yes. as I speak. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we recorded a podcast Direct from the M4, motorway <laughs> from the cabin of a Lexus. Yes. Um, we are in a car again. Um, we're not going anywhere. We're not moving. We're in a car park at Donington Park. Um, you might. There's clearly a track day going on today. Yeah. It's Monday morning. There's clearly a track day going on because there are some very track day-ish cars driving along behind us. So you might hear the odd sort of fruity exhaust note. You might hear a plane going overhead. Um, it's a wet day. Donington Park in the wet. Slippery. Yeah, Dan Craners. Yeah, but also this time of year. Yes. This time of year because, you know, the, the, the circuit won't have seen a huge amount of use over the winter. And all that av gas that gets dropped on it from East Midlands Airport next door. I mean, Donington in the wet is always slippery. This time of year, yeah. it's just absolutely, you know, you sort of go, go out the pit lane, turn into Redgate and just go straight in the gravel. I remember racing the Mini Challenge here um, and it was dry most of the weekend. I think this was the second of three races i think um and it just started spitting a little bit and i was like okay it's fine it's just spitting it's a warmish day yeah the road the track is otherwise dry um and then i turned into it's the old hairpin at the bottom of crane it's the right isn't it yeah yeah um turned into there and the car just tried to spin on me it tried to swap ends um and i, I just assumed the track was still dry but i guess when just a little bit of rain comes down it picks up all the muck that gets yeah. lodged into it's the, the track surface yeah you can see sometimes you can see this sort of you know emulsion on the surface of it it really is um it's one of those circuits where you know knowing a decent wet line um it's just really really important mm. and if you don't just drive around the outside of every corner yeah which actually in the heat of the moment when you're desperately trying to go fast yeah it's totally counterintuitive isn't it yeah. but it is the right thing to do um okay we're not actually talking about track days or donnington park we're just we're here for a meeting something totally separate um, but we've got a busy podcast this week. There's an awful lot to talk about. Um, we are going to catch up on the Grand Prix just briefly, the um, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Um, there's a, a few other things that we're going to discuss. But mostly we're talking about the cars that only enthusiasts drive. And we'll come on to this a little bit later on. But I had this idea when I pulled out at a junction behind a Toyota GT86. And I just thought, you do not have one of those cars no. unless you're an enthusiast. Yes. A real to the bone enthusiast absolutely because you'd never buy one of those to show it off to your mates no no because it doesn't do that and so we're thinking about the other cars that fit into that category but then on the other side of the coin the enthusiast the sports cars the performance cars that actually appeal to people who aren't necessarily enthusiasts um or who by definition aren't enthusiasts yes. well there we go yeah and that's yeah so the <laughs> well you mentioned this just now the um 
the, the the seemingly enthusiast cars that no enthusiast would buy. Yeah. Um, so so there's, there are kind of three categories, aren't there? There are enthusiast yeah. cars that only enthusiasts would buy, enthusiast cars that anyone might buy, yeah. and apparently enthusiast cars that, in fact, no enthusiast would buy. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, there's plenty so we're to gonna, get. So we're going to end up upsetting people here, aren't we? Well, it's inevitable, but there we go. Actually, talking of upsetting people, <laughs> so we started last week's podcast by talking about the newest addition to our writer lineup, Steve Sutcliffe. Now, yes. we're clearly very very proud to have steve sutcliffe on board um he is one of the great uk car journalists um we're going to talk about him very briefly now very briefly i promise because he we've published his first two ti stories um the latter went up on thursday last week and it's a brilliant piece that i've been wanting to read for basically 20 years because it was just over 20 years ago and he's never written it before is it he's never written about it in detail um so this is the first, you know, extensive story he's ever written about it. But 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, he went to um, Circuit de Catalunya, the Barcelona F1 track, to drive the Jaguar Formula One car. Um, it was the R3, R3 Jaguar, yeah. yeah. So the 2002 car that was being retired at the end of that year. Um, and this is a legendary tale within, well, probably car enthusiast circles, actually, and certainly car media circles. Um, he went out um, the day before he was due to drive the F1 car with um, Jaguar's F1 star Antonio Pizzonia, the young Brazilian guy. Um, they went out with a photographer in the back seat in a Jaguar S-type, S-type R as a, <clears throat> a sort of recce to just, just to have a look at the track. And the story's so well known, I think. Antonio Pizzonia had a massive crash with the other two on board coming into turn one down the the main straight seemingly just used his f1 braking zone yeah and of course that's just not going to work in a 1800 kilogram (laughs) saloon car so off they went and it was a a massive smash actually they were all lucky to get away more or less unhurt um but it's an amazing story and steve has never written about it before and he has done it for us now so it's on the intercooler app and website um and we also managed to dig out some images that haven't been seen before. So images of the aftermath of the of the crash, the car itself. Um, it's a it's a wreck that thing. So go and have a look. Um, but the first piece he wrote, which went live a few well a week ago today actually, uh, an extraordinary response. I've never known anything like it. Um, most people, good humoured, took it in the spirit of what it was intended. It's a, a piece in a new series that Steve wanted to write called Overrated, where he looks at the cars that he thinks got a better press than they deserved. Yeah. This first one was on the Toyota GR Yaris. Yes. Um, and the response has been extraordinary. You know, loads and loads of people read it. Loads of people commented. Most people, I think, enjoyed it, took it for what it was, just a slightly different perspective on an interesting car that's been discussed a lot from someone with a very credible opinion um, and uh, an honest point of view. Um, Others didn't take it quite like that. No, and they were, I think, well, I suspect that they were exclusively GR Yaris owners. And I do understand it. You know, nobody, you know, buying something like that, uh, it's a lot of money, it's a big decision. And you don't want a very well-known car authority telling you you got it wrong. Um, And I completely understand that. But, you know... It is just one person's opinion. Yeah. You know, Steve would never say, I'm right, you're wrong. He'd just say, well, this is what I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are entitled to their views. Um, you know, Steve's view is extremely credible because he has driven everything. Um, and, you know, that's it. And so, you know, to all of those who got, you know, understandably upset about it, um, it's not, as some have suggested, why we set out... Mm to write the story we weren't you know we're never ever going to do and i hope well, i'm slightly sad but i even have to say this that we're sort of you know trying to be you know clickbaity about it it's the last thing in the world we just thought it was a really interesting perspective and we're going to carry on doing these stories because there are cars out there which for whatever reason um have had a better um press than they deserved or their reputation over time has become augmented in a way that a person, be it Steve or be it anywhere else, anyone else, um, thinks is probably not entirely deserved. And, you know, if a car has just received unrelenting praise for years after it is just, it's no more or less than just interesting. 
to hear a different take on it. And mm. that's it. It's just one person's view. He's not right and he's not wrong. It's just what he thinks. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's well, to my mind, it's, you know, it's just not worth getting upset about. <laughs> Agreed. And, um, you know, if you and I had sat around going, now, how can we irritate people and wind people up and get them talking about us and drum up some publicity? Yeah. Fair enough. Maybe um, that is a, bit, a fairly underhand thing to do. Actually, it was Steve's idea. Um, he came to us and said, I'd like to write these stories. This is the first one. And you and I just went, oh, I'm not sure I agree with you there. Well, given who you are, I want to read that story. There, there, there's know. one coroner's literature coming up, which I absolutely don't agree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, but the thing is, you know, I've known Steve for, oh God, I want to think about it, 35 years. Um, and, you know, we may not agree, but I absolutely respect his opinion. Mm. Um, you know, I absolutely, what I hope, as I'm sure will be the case, is that I will, even if I don't agree with it, I'll understand what he's saying. Um, and I just think it's really, really interesting. And it's, you know, yeah. I think it's a really good counterpoint, particularly in an era where, uh, hopefully not on TI, but within the motoring media generally, I think that there is, uh, particularly if you read, you know, a lot of free stuff online, I think that there is, um, what's the word, a propensity to give cars the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Um, and... Yeah, Steve's not going to do that. No, and actually, from a journalist's point of view, giving the car the benefit of the doubt serves the manufacturer, and that's where the power is. It doesn't serve the buyer. Yeah. And our, we represent the buyer. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, clearly, it, that is a provocative story to write, overrated GR Yaris. Steve doesn't say it's a bad car by any means. He's just setting out why he doesn't think it's quite the second coming that others have said it is. Um, and... The, f the point for me is that it's an honestly held view from a very credible writer, and so that clearly has a place on TI. Now, some have said, have pointed out, and I should address this quickly, that Steve did originally write a couple of years ago a positive review on the GIRS, and he addresses this very point in a comment on the Intercooler website beneath the article. You can go and find it if you want to. But he basically says, I had hardly any time in the car on terrible roads, and you're under pressure to deliver a verdict. Um, and so he wrote his story. Later on, drove the car several more times on better roads, on track, yeah. and adjusted his point of view. Yeah. And actually, I think that's absolutely fine. I've done it many times. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're only as good as the environment that you find yourself in. And, yeah. and obviously, if you're a car manufacturer and you're launching a car, you know, you're going to launch it in whatever environment you think is going to show the car off in the best light. Um, you know, and, you know, as, as anybody who's driven, you know, anywhere other than the UK will know, um, the UK particularly, and I know this podcast has listened world over, but we are a UK-based um, company, it, you know, the UK and UK roads present a particular challenge um, to cars that you, you will find almost nowhere else. And, you know, um, you can reach the most honestly held conclusions about a car, but if, they, if all you've had to drive it on are, you know, crappy roads, you haven't had enough time to really extend it, roads you don't know, with very little time in the car, it's not your fault if once you get it back to roads which are relevant yeah. to the people that you're writing for, which, are, you know, which do put the car through a series of tests that it's never going to have encountered when it was launched. You know, if you actually, if you modify that view, mm. um, I think it's, it would, frankly, I think it would be completely unprofessional not to. Yeah, that's just boneheadedness, isn't it? Yeah. I've already said this, so I must stick to it. Um, it's just it's ignorant so we, we won't do that but I get it I, you know we're going to keep doing them I'm sure some other people will get um, wound up by these stories but, but I understand because I remember when I had my Alpine and I would see someone comment online oh it's not that good or I, d I don't understand you know I'd, my keyboard fingers would start twitching I never actually responded I don't think but you feel strongly about the car that you own that you've put a lot of money and, into and understandably so but I, th I yeah. think the thing is is that you know when you're talking about someone like Steve Sutcliffe who has been around for so long is such a superb driver and you know and here's the thing he has driven everything mm. you know you might not agree with him but you can't say that his opinion doesn't count um that he somehow disqualifies himself. Um, you know, if anybody is entitled to an informed view of that car, it's someone like Steve who's driven it in every environment that any, any owners like to drive it and can say the same for every rival that car has. Yep. You will not get a more informed opinion whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. So these overrated pieces, you're not going to agree with them all. Are we um, do any underrated? 
Well, I think people would like to read those. Yeah. Lots of people have said. So, yeah, we'll do those as well. Um, and, you know, the point is they should just be interesting to our audience. And I think most of our readers enjoyed that piece. And I'm sure most will continue to enjoy these stories. It's actually not our intention to go out and irritate people and try and drum up some attention. That's not it at all. No, it's but it's also... To it's publish not, interesting no, stuff. But it's also... It's, it's not our intention to go out and just write... No. You know, the same old stuff that everybody, that, that no. everybody else writes. You know, no. we, we, you know, if by writing these things, we, you know, challenge existing views where we think that those views are... Um, I don't want to say not right because they're not, that would suggest that they're wrong, but you know, not the ones that whatever car it is deserves. Then you know, I think I think that's interesting, and I think you know, nobody else is doing it. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that you know, Ti, we we really really do like to think that you know we are just like you, proper car enthusiasts, um, and that you don't want to be served a diet of bland, unquestioning praise of everything that anybody gets into. Um, and if that means occasionally something needs revisiting um, and another perspective provided, I say good. Mm. Absolutely. There we go. Let's leave it there. Yep. Enough said already. So let's talk about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Briefly. Um, I actually didn't watch it. I was in the car coming home from a Mother's Day lunch, so I had it on the radio. And I, I've clearly listened to F1 on the radio before, but I was thinking about it yesterday, and it's a, a totally different way of following a Grand Prix because... You are utterly reliant on the commentators. Yeah. Um, where if you're watching on the TV, you've got the pictures. You've also got the timing screen, so you can actually follow. You can more or less follow any race you like, you know, up and down the grid, but just by watching the timing screens and seeing who's yeah. pitting and who's losing time, who's gaining. And also, you think on, on Sky now, they've got, which I haven't got because I haven't got. Well, I've got Sky, but I haven't got whatever you need: Sky Q or Sky yeah. Gold or Sky, you know, what, whatever. But you can now just decide. You can just be in a driver's cockpit for the entire race. Yeah. You just be in there and you, and you can hear their pit radio for the duration. Um, so, whereas if you're listening to it on the radio, I mean, the commentator's job is so difficult, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. And they can't describe everything. You've got to be you. across everything there, haven't you? Yeah. But they, you know, they can't give you detail on every, every driver's no. race, can they? It would no. be ridiculous. So, uh, you know, I actually don't have a clear idea of what happened in the pits. What happened to Ferrari? I don't really okay. know. So, so, well, so, so uh, I mean, I did watch it. Um, one of the takeaways, um, well, obviously, Red Bull are in a different league to anybody else. I think mm-hmm. we knew that. Um, Max couldn't catch Perez at the end, um, which, which I thought was interesting. But, yeah. you know, Checo, as we do know, he comes alive on street circuits. He, um, he is, you know, he is superb at that. So I wouldn't necessarily read too much into that. Um, I mean, the interesting one, I guess, is Mercedes. I mean, George actually ended up with a podium in the end because um, Alonso had another 10 seconds put on his penalty because I think the jack touched the car. Uh, so he had his third place finish taken away from him. So it's been reinstated. Alonso's been reinstated, has he? Yeah. He's got it back again? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're ahead of me. Um, but anyway, so, the, so I, th- I think really the only interesting thing to say is that the Mercedes came... Fourth and fifth. Uh, two things to say that I think, you know, and every time I say this, and I'm not a huge George Russell fan any more than I'm a Lewis Hamilton detractor. Uh, neither, actually. I'm a massive Lewis fan. But I think, as I argued last year, and people, some people disagree with me, I think that George was at least as good as Lewis last year. And yesterday, I just think he, he just outdrove him. I mean, there was a bit when Lewis was closing in on George and Lewis was on the radio going, I want to go fast, because the point being that Lewis was on medium tyres and George was on hards. And I think George got the message to move over and let Lewis past. Uh, and George thought, well, I'm not going to do that. And he just, he just drove away from Lewis Hamilton when Lewis was on medium tyres and George was on hards. So what happened there? Did, do you think he just had more speed or were Lewis's tyres going off? I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know. it was a long stint for a set of mediums, wasn't it? It was a long stint, yeah, but it wasn't right at the end of the stint. No. By any means. No. Um, so you'd think that there would be some life left. I mean, given that Mercedes thought that they'd be good enough to get to the end of the race. And George did just drive away from him. So that's one takeaway. The second one is obviously Mercedes did an awful lot better than I think some people were were expecting. Mm. Certainly beat both Ferraris, hands down. Um, and I haven't heard anyone say this, um, <coughs> but uh, I think probably the reason for that is Saudi Arabia is a very low downforce track yeah. it's the fastest street circuit in the world by a mile you know you have lap average speeds of over 150 miles an hour yeah, i mean it's amazing. just terrifying to look at i think it's the biggest ball circuit out there yeah um but if you've got a car which struggles for downforce 
then it probably is going to do a bit better on a circuit where downforce isn't that big a requirement. Um, so I suspect that's probably mm. um, behind a lot of Mercedes. It'll be interesting to see uh, where do they go to next. Is it Baku? Uh, Australia, I think. Australia. Sorry, so you go, they go to Melbourne next, don't they? Um, which is another completely different type of circuit. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they get on there. Um, but, but certainly, I think it's far too early to say that Mercedes is even close to sorting out its problems, and oh, God, yeah. um, and that it's going to be you know even the third best team out there at the moment. I mean, I think that it probably is still the fourth best team, um, but uh, but we will see. And I don't really think there's an awful lot else to say about the rest. Uh, well, Ferrari. So they, Charles qualified second, but he got punted all the way back with an engine or some sort of penalty, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but they just didn't seem to come alive in the race. No. No, they didn't. No, they were they, 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 they were they were, you know, never really challenged the the Astons consistently, did they? Let alone get anywhere near the Red Bulls. Um, yeah. And and you know, for me, you know, the big worry is, you know, the Red Bulls just seem to be able to, you know, if you've got any sense at all, if you are a dominant team, you drive, you make your cars go as slowly as you can possibly make them go, while still winning the race. Because you don't want to be... What possible benefit is there to Red Bull to just disappearing off into the distance? You're never going to get a lap ahead. So if there's a safety car, there's a safety car. Mm. All you're going to do is draw more and more attention to just how uh, fast you are and faster you are than anybody else, which is just going to make it more likely that you know, somebody thinks, well, we've got to do something to address this and rules get tweaked and that sort of thing. So you know, they will win those races by a smaller margin as they possibly can. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, and you know Max started what P fifteen, still came easily second. I know he's helped by a safety car, but he'd done it anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, Checo disappeared from Alonso, um, and you know I think just controlled the race, drove a beautiful race. But um, yeah, they just seem to have a different car to everybody else, don't they? Oh, they do. Toto Wolff was saying in, um, before the Grand Prix that now that they've decided or realised that they were wrong to continue with their Preview their car concept from last year. Do you know what Twitter is? It's, sometimes it's a cesspit. Sometimes it's very funny. The, on Twitter, they're calling the new Mercedes W14 the W13B. Uh, <laughs> they, they do amuse me when they pull out gags like that. Um, but Toto has—they've accepted that it was wrong to continue with that concept. And now that they have switched their attention to a new one in their wind tunnel or certainly in CFD, he says they're seeing very strong results already. Which is interesting. I mean, presumably the W14 will only ever be a hybrid of two concepts. But it's just not if in that period of time they've seen amazing results. Did they not do that as just an experiment um, at the end of last season just to see whether this was actually still the right way to be going? Or were they so completely wedded to one philosophy which nobody else was following, despite the fact that it had had landed them absolutely squarely on their arses last year? Mm. Um... Did they not even look at the alternatives? And and and, you know, and the fact is, now that they appear to have done that and they're seeing amazing results in such a short period of time, there's something we don't know. Yeah, because, I mean, it feels it. Yeah, there's something we don't know. I, th- I think that's... Um, I don't know whether that's, you know, just talking it up or, or, or whatever or just, you know, saying what needs to be said or keeping sponsors happy or, or whatever. But, yeah, there's something we don't know about. That yeah. just doesn't... That just doesn't... It doesn't ring true to me that they could have one concept, they ignore all the others... And then when for the second time running, it turns out to be rubbish, they go back, revisit it, have another look, go in another yeah. direction and suddenly go, oh, wow, that's amazing. Because, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's frankly not a, you know, a massively professional no. approach. And we know that's, it, they are probably the most massively professional team on the grid. They said um, that they were persuaded to continue with the concept on the basis of the encouraging results at the end of last season. And so you wonder if they hadn't won in Brazil, if they hadn't picked up some of those podiums. A Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, is that right? Maybe, I don't know. Right, okay. Interesting. So there we go. We'll see what happens. Um, let's talk about cars that only enthusiasts drive. Now, we are sitting in my car, which I'll come on to a bit later, but I'm looking at the car that you're running about in at the moment. Yes. Alpine A110. It's a long-termer, isn't it? But that is a prime example for me. It's absolutely It's it, it's absolutely on my list. Um, you're not going to buy an A110 if you... Okay. Come, come, sorry, before we do any of this, can I just say, because I don't want to, I don't mind if I cheese off people, you know, because we disagree with each other, but I don't want people to become cheesed off because they just misunderstood me. So 
By enthusiast, I think there are lots of different sorts of enthusiasts, and I think that there is a sort of enthusiast who really is really into the the design and yeah. the style and the appearance, and that doesn't make them any less of an enthusiast than anybody else. Um, but they will buy cars for very different reasons to the reasons you and I buy cars, and I think probably quite different reasons to those that most of the people listening to this podcast will buy them. So when we say enthusiast cars, um, what we actually mean are cars which are born, bought, for the driving experience, overwhelmingly yeah. above any other consideration. Yes. They are bought for what they are like to drive because they they feel and they respond in the way that people who love to drive um, you know, want a car to feel and respond. And and so, that's, so, so please couch everything that you hear in those terms. So when we say slightly tongue-in-cheek, oh, that's a car no enthusiast would buy, what we actually mean is that's a car that no enthusiast whose motivation and whose love of cars yeah. is derived from how they feel when they drive them. Um, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. That is, yeah, I'm glad we clarified that point. Also, I don't want this to sound like we're gatekeeping because, frankly, I wish we would fling open the gates to... Um, petrol hedonism wide open and allow the whole world in um but it's just a bit of fun really isn't it and i you know there are people and i know many of them some of them are my closest friends my little brother is one i call them the in-betweeners they are interested enough in cars to care about what they drive and to spend their money on something interesting or a bit sporty but my little brother for instance is not a die-hard geek died in the world full nerd enthusiast like us poor chap or like anyone listening to this podcast he doesn't listen to this podcast um and so there are plenty that they're probably a bigger constituency actually they're massively bigger because otherwise a110s would outsell audi tt's 10 to 1 and they just don't yeah yeah so the a110 that's a prime example because no one knows what an alpine is when they ask you have to say it's part of renault and that's not that glamorous what's the engine well it's a Renault Megane engine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a not 1.8. cool, is it? And um, it's the same price as a Porsche Cayman, for instance. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to project an image, if you want people to think that you're doing well in life, yes. and that's your main motivation, yes. you have the Cayman, don't you? You have the Cayman, because if you have to get to the point where you explain that one of the most amazing things about the A110 is the way that the windscreen washer fluid is distributed <laughs> through the wiper blade rather than across the screen, which therefore means that they ha- you have to use much less of it. Therefore, you can afford to have a much smaller washer bottle and therefore you save that, that many grams because that's the level of geeky attention to detail they went into to, when designing this car to make sure it was as light as humanly possible. You know, <laughs> I find <laughs> that stuff be, really interesting. But, but who's no, going to be impressed at the pub? <laughs> <laughs> they, you can just see the eyes glazing over, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So, there you go. So, some others. Um, I've mentioned the Toyota GT86. Yes, um, definitely. That's a good one because... Um, so, it's much more affordable than the Alpine, isn't it? But um, it's a fairly tinny sort of car, scratchy plastics inside. And yeah. again, it doesn't look like a glamorous, expensive thing. Well, it isn't. No, and it's not at all. And you buy one because they're fun to drive. And it's a Toyota. It's made by the same people who... It's a Toyota. It's made by the same people who make the Prius. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a good example. And you, and you could sort of say, oh, yeah, I know, but it's got, it's got this great diff in it, and it's got these yeah. premacy tires on it, which means it just oversteers everywhere. And again, you can just see people thinking, oh, God, how much longer will this be got? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and that's, and, and that's absolutely fine. But you, you'd never buy one of those. There is, I think a GT86, it might even be the prime example of a car that you could only conceivably ever buy because you just, you just love driving. Well, another is a car you've got. Well, Caterham. Caterham. Oh God, they are so uncool. <laughs> they are the least cool cars. I've got, I, I have two daughters who are now both in their twenties. Oh, really? Yes. And um, one of them will go in it at gunpoint, and the other just doesn't want to know at all. <laughs> doesn't want to know. They are the least cool cars in the world. Um, I actually posted a little uh, reel on Instagram yesterday about starting my 1.7 litre Ford engine after the sort of winter layoff and. Uh, and, and all you can hear is the sort of starter motor, and then you can hear sort of a bit of a chug and a burp and a groan, and, a little, and then finally it sort of, sort of ish gets going on most of its cylinders. Um, and some people absolutely love that. I do. Other people will think, well, what earth would you do something like that? And again, it's just down to the enthusiasm. You just, I just love all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and Caterham's, I think, probably more than any other car. Well, pretty well. I mean, I suppose yeah, something like an Atom, I guess, is another. Well, category, that's right. Li- all lightweight sports cars, I think, come yeah. into that category. Lotus Elise, I think, as well, though. Oh, well, hang on. Oh, go on. No, okay, I'll make the case for the Lotus Elise. Um, you see, I think you might have an Elise 
for another reason. An exige, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. Yep. And I've actually got so I've got I've got I've got I've got a very short list here, but I've got exige in one column, which is under only enthusiasts, and then I've got Elise under anyone for exactly that reason. Because I think that there is, I think Elise's do look quite cool, and their yeah. lotuses. I mean, it's got a proper brand. It's not like you know an Alpine or a Caterham where people sort of squint and barely heard of it. It's a lotus. lotus. Okay, I was um, driving a Series One Elise uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and it's the first time I've driven a Series One, um, and I am going to write about it soon. Um, and I was struck as I was getting in and out of it. What a pain in the ass it was! I'm going to get in and out. Yeah, even the... with the roof off, it's a pain. And yeah. I was thinking, oh, it's a wonderful car to drive, by the way. But it, it, it is annoying just to use. Um, and I was thinking, you're not going to do this unless you're really into the subject matter. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Okay. I'm going to put a car forward here which gets into all three categories. Right, go on. Only enthusiast, anyone, and no enthusiast. Just to prove that we're talking utter nonsense. Uh, just to prove we're talking, but, okay, tell me I'm wrong. Go on. Porsche 911. Oh. Okay. So, only enthusiast, <laughs> GT3 RS. Okay, different versions. Uh, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, anyone. No, I can see where you're going. Turbo. Yeah. Or a Carrera. Or, or, or a standard Carrera. Not an enthusiast, Targa. Targa. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. I think it is fair enough, isn't it? That's fair enough. And do you know what? There are going to be exceptions to every single rule that we write here. Of course there are. Um, This is a sort of generalisation. But Targa, do you think, do you see a sort of changing of attitudes around Targas now? I see people who definitely are enthusiasts saying, particularly online on social media, oh, I quite fancy a Targa now. See, I quite fancy a Targa. I I quite fancy a Targa, but I'm 57. Yeah. Um, So does that come later on then? Well, I don't know, but it, I, you know, I do quite fancy a Targa, but nothing like as much as I fancy um, a Carrera T. Yeah, yeah, okay. Carrera T is a good example of a enthusiast car, I think. Yes, yeah, so no one other than enthusiast, no one other than enthusiast would go. Well, Carrera T, what's that? And you go, well, it's the only manual base spec Carrera you can get, you can get, and it's got PASM and a slipper in it. Where do where do McLarens fit into this? Oh, haha, okay. So this is another category. So, I, I, okay. So, I, are so you splitting them up? No, no, I'm not. Okay, fine. okay. I'm doing completely reverse this. So, I've now got entire car companies, yeah, who make competitive products to each other, who exist in three categories. So, yeah. only enthusiasts by McLarens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Okay. Anyone Ferrari? Anyone Ferrari? Yeah. Only Lamborghinis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're going to upset people with that, aren't oh, we? Oh, yeah, but we're not being that serious. No, we're not. No, we're not. But if you had to generalise the three, those three supercar yes. manufacturers within the categories we've assigned, we've set ourselves, yes. that's the way it would go, wouldn't it? it yes. It, it, certainly, if you had those three categories and you thought which three manufacturers both best fit them, you know, I really do... I've, okay, let's put it this way. I have never met a person who has owned or owns a McLaren who is not what I would call, by our terms of reference, yeah. and just to talking about in terms of people who love cars for how they drive, I'd have never met a McLaren owner who, 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 who doesn't come into that category. Yeah. I've met, frankly, plenty of Ferrari owners. I've also met Ferrari owners who love nothing else but to drive. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because they do, but... And, you know, Lamborghini. Okay, we, 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 we're always a bit sort of, I don't know, lighthearted about these things, but generally speaking, I think it is fair to say that most people when considering whether to buy a Lamborghini or not, are more taken by the image and the appearance than they are by their yeah. limit handling or any other yes. measure of which, you know, driving pleasure is usually. Yeah. And actually, that, but that tallies with my experience for the most part. So, you know, I've driven Aventadors and just sort of thought, okay, it's a lot of noise, it's a lot of, lot of go, a lot of image, but not a lot of interaction, not a lot of fun at the wheel. I've driven... Uh, hurricanes and gallardos and i've thought much the same but the most recent examples of each so the rear drive hurricane evo sensational thing yeah um aventador svj sensational in the right environment in the right environment oh fantastic um so there are absolutely examples of lamborghinis that perhaps fit into other categories as well but i i agree with you mclaren ferrari lamborghini that's how i'd split them up um right now let's just talk about AMGs, Mercedes AMGs. Because there's no question that plenty of those appeal to these sort of in-betweener guys. Okay, think of an AMG which only an enthusiast would buy. Um, I don't think there is one. Black Series models, maybe? No, I don't think so. 
You think they would appeal broadly? I think as well? I, th- I think they go in the middle because I think people would yeah. buy those for for the image. A CLK black, maybe mm. something absolutely nuts like that. CLK DTM. What? Okay. What about an E sixty three wagon? No, I don't. No, I think you know. Gone and, and, and I speak as someone. I speak as someone who covers E sixty three wagons. You know, yeah. more than more, more than most cars. Um, but no, I can see, I can just see someone who recognises the need to have an E class estate because it's just about the biggest estate out there. Um, but because they can afford it and because they think the noise is quite funny and they like the image <laughs> and the profile, they'll just think I'll have the fast one. Whereas something like a C sixty three coupe, that's prime. In between the territory, isn't it? Yeah. That really is. Yeah. Where where do M cars fit? Because oh, they uh-huh. used to be... They're pure, on my list too. Yeah, they used to be pure enthusiasts, really, didn't they? Yeah. Certainly a long time ago. Perhaps that has that changed a while back. Um, well, again, I think, I, think I've got them, I think they're in all three categories. Okay, let's have them. M2 comp. Yeah. Only an enthusiast. Do you think? I think. Actually, yeah, I, I probably agree with you. I was getting ready to make the counterpoint, but... I think I probably agree with you on that. Because if you do want to show off, you probably want the M4 or the M3. Exactly. So the M4 is in the middle category. Yeah. And the X6 Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we need to dwell on that anymore. No, no justification needed. No. Um, God, we're ripping through these, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. Bugatti. Do you know, it's such a rarefied world, I don't know enough about it to say. I think they're in the middle. They are absolutely in the middle because... Okay, I, I, I'm just trying to think of all the Bugatti owners I know. I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think there are precisely none, no. but, I, but, I, but, I, but I've met some. And I've certainly spoken to, um, I've had long conversations, um, actually, in Bugatti's with Andy Wallace, who is their sort of chief de- test driver, and he's the chap who goes and takes clients out and introduces them to their new cars and that sort of thing. And he will tell you that they come from far and wide, but he will tell you that they love driving. Mm. Um, and mm, they love the particular... And... You know, a Chiron is a. It's interesting because you know because you know because it's heavy and it's not particularly agile. It's you know it's you know if you think about these things in terms of I don't know A110s and K-trims, it doesn't sort of really qualify. But there is a quality to the driving experience because it is so different. Um, it is a genuinely, but of course it is an unbelievably exciting car, and I can see proper enthusiasts who, just because it does stuff that basically nothing else can do, um, could get really, really um, excited about that. So I think, I think it's an in-betweener car. Can we, talk, can we talk hot hatchbacks? Well, I'd like to, but first, can I just um, raise one more? Mazda MX-5. In, the, in between? Absolutely in between. Definitely in and, between. And the point I'd make about the MX-5 and the 911, and I think, generally speaking, the 911 as a whole has to fit in the middle because... Um, well, what I'll say is that it's the MX-5 and the 911 are perhaps the two most successful sports cars ever. And the reason that they have sold in such enormous numbers is because they appeal mm. to a generalist audience. If yeah. you, you know, Alpine probably are finding this out now, aren't they? Appeal to the diehard petrolhead audience. And there just aren't very many of us. You struggle to yeah. make a, a we are. We case. are... Yeah, because we we tend to hang out with each other. I don't mean you and me. I mean just you know diehard petrol heads, as yeah. you describe. Um, and so, so many of the people that we see come. You kind of sort of kid yourself into believing. Well, everybody must be like that because mm. all the people I know are like that. Yeah, but we're not. No. If you listen to this, um, you know you're you're, you're a bit strange. <laughs> you we are like you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am too. Um, no, I because you're not like most people. You know, if you love the feel of a car steering in your hand as you go down the road, if you take videos of your old car starting up after the winter, you're just a bit strange. <laughs> um, and, you know, all power to you for that. Um, but, you know, we are not in any way representative of, you know, people out there because they're just not like us. So you wanted to talk hot hatches. I'm glad you raised that because we're sat in my hot hatch yes. in my VW Golf GTI at the moment. Yeah. A car I love dearly. Yeah. But it sits in the middle. It does sit in the middle. There are plenty of people out there who have one of these cars because it's got a good image. Yeah. Um, because it is, uh, you know, there's heritage and history. And if you say to someone, if someone asks you, what do you drive? And you say, oh, Golf GTI. They're going to go, oh, nice. Mm. And they know what that is. Yeah. You don't have to then go... It's a Seat. It's a bit like a VW, but it's from Spain. 
you know, people know what it is. But it also, it just really works, doesn't it? It, does it just work. does. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking around me and I'm just thinking, you know, um, it just it just works. It does everything that you want a car like this to do. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but it is also, as you are living proof, bought by people who are just diehard enthusiasts yeah. as well. So it can be both. Yeah. But compare this to, and I think maybe the best example is a Renault Sport Megane. Similar money, certainly when you could buy one. Um, comparable kind of car. Yeah. But I think a Renault Sport Megane sits much more in the enthusiast-only category. Oh, completely. But even a Civic Type R. Do you know what? And speaking of both of those, I've seen several examples of each trundle behind us yeah. as they head out towards the, the pit lane for their track day in the rain at Donington Park. It's a, it's a, a good demonstration of just how enthusiasty the Civic Type R's and Renault Sport Megane's are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Um, can we do an old car and its modern equivalent mm-hmm. existing in two utterly different categories? Yeah. Honda NSX. Oh, yeah, because original NSX, that really is a pure enthusiast car, isn't it? Yes, because no one would buy a Honda no, when you could have a Ferrari. Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Unless that Honda had something, which, you know. Um, where's the new NSX, though? <sighs> it's certainly not in that category. It's a question whether it's in the everyone category or the actually only bought by people who are not in love with the driving experience. I would say that, I'm afraid. Because it just doesn't offer enough to the enthusiast driver. Because really if you loves. were going to spend that amount of money, if you were a diehard driver, or even if you were just someone who was quite into the driving experience, given that you know, you're not buying it for the badge, if you were going to spend that amount of money on that kind of car and you were interested in how it drove... You wouldn't buy an NSX. You wouldn't. You'd buy a some sort of. You buy a Porsche or a yeah. or, 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 or a, you know a five seventy S or or something like that. You wouldn't buy an NSX. So I th- I think it's actually um, in the category of people who are not enthusiasts. Mm. Interesting. No, I didn't see that one coming. Have you got any others? Um, how can I put this? No. <laughs> Apart from... Okay, can we just talk generally in terms of, you know, just classes of cars? Is there an, is there an SUV or an EV that could live in the only enthusiast category? I think I already know the answer to that question. <laughs> SUV, I don't think there ever will be. EV, oh. I don't think there is now, but I believe there will be at some point. I'm going to have to convince you on that one, aren't I? Tesla Roadster. Mm, no. No, I mean... I think it will be when Alpine or Lotus goes electric. Yeah. Okay, what about something like a Taycan GTS? No, it's still not in the enthusiast-only category, is it? Not enthusiast-only, but it's getting there. Because, yeah, probably if you do want to just show off, you'd have a Turbo or a Turbo S, wouldn't you? Yeah. So maybe that's edging towards it, but no, it's not enthusiast-only. No. And there's nothing else. No. Uh, And, okay, SUVs. So what is okay? What is to drive? What is the best SUV you can buy at the moment? DBX seven oh seven. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. But there, no, there'll be plenty of people who have those because it's an Aston Martin. Yeah, and because it looks like that, and because it's a two and a bit ton SUV. Not for how it drives. Yeah, no, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So mm. there you go. God, I hadn't considered that there might be enthusiast cars that enthusiasts do not buy, but. Uh, I think you make a good point. Oh. I think you make a very good point. Again, it's just my point of view, <laughs> isn't it? It's not any hard or fast rule. Well, let us know what we've missed. Get in touch. Um, and what we've got wrong as well. If we've offended you and insulted your car, which we seem to be doing a bit recently, um, let us know why. Uh, it's all just a bit of fun, though. Remember that. So one of the, the, the final thing that, apart from the listener question a bit later on, the final thing I wanted to mention is that 2023 is an important year um, for the Porsche 911. Very. 60 years. Yeah. Um, and I think th- throughout the, the coming months, we're going to have a little look into the 911, aren't we? And tell some of the story. Yeah. Um, starting with a piece that you've written uh, that goes live quite soon about what what is potentially the missing link between the 356 and the 911. Yeah, just how different the 911 not only could have been, but actually very nearly was. Uh, and if it had gone down this road and it went close enough for the car in question to be certainly, if not production ready, then certainly um, 
you know, prototypes were built, um, finished cars were, were shown, and so on. Um, there's no way it would have lasted as long as it did. There's no way it would have ca- it would have just been another car, which may or may not have done well in the marketplace, but it would have come and it would have gone. Um, and the phenomenon, the legend, and for once I think I can use that word, yeah. that is the 911, um, would never have been born. So I go into that car, particularly go into its engine, which although it was an air-cooled flat six, was very different to the air-cooled flat six that went into the um, into the 901, let us, let us not forget, that appeared at the Frankfurt Show in September 1963. Um, so that's kind of like the, you know, the birth of the 911. And as you say, over the next well, the weeks and months to come, both on the podcast and, um, and on the app, um, we're just going to delve into those bits of the 911's history that are, I guess, are particularly interesting to us, whether it is you know, uh, general road cars or special derivatives of road cars or it's extraordinary competition history. I mean, it is the most successful racing car in history, apart from anything else. Um, It was an incredibly successful rally car. You know, it's, you know, a derivative of it won Le Mans. Um, It is extraordinary when you think back over the 60 years and everything that one single design Mm. went on to achieve. It is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, Good, so there's much more of that to come. Um, we've got a listener question coming up. It's a good one. Um, before that, please remember to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, there's probably an option to follow or subscribe to the Intercooler podcast. Do that now. It takes seconds, and it really helps us, so thank you. Um, so the listener question comes from um, a Norwegian listener. I th- apologies if I get your name wrong. I think it's Sandra, um, who says, In an increasingly globalised world where outsourcing seems to be the trend. The new Defender made in Slovakia, the new M2 to be built in Mexico. Does it matter where a car is made? I remain slightly conflicted by this idea. For instance, would a barber jacket made in China be the same, or a Bentley built in Bangladesh? Well, let us not forget that there were Bentleys built in Germany. Oh, Um, which ones? A few flying spurs. So when Bentley relaunched the brand in 2003 with the Continental GT, and I think the spur came along a couple of years later, and suddenly the Bentley brand went absolutely supersonic, just before things went absolutely um, off a cliff in 2007-2008, they didn't have enough capacity at crew. Um, Mm. And so they did build some flying spurs at a Volkswagen factory in Dresden. Mm. Um, I... There's a head and a heart answer to this, isn't there? I mean, you know, how many Boxsters and Caymans came out of Valmet in Finland? And who even knows yeah. that they might be driving a Porsche which wasn't built by Porsche? Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, so and also there are two legs to this question. So, you know, if, the, if a car is built in a factory that is not the same in the same country as the, uh, as, 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 as the headquarters of the brand, if you like... Um, you know, that's one thing. If it's actually built by an entirely separate company, like, you know, yeah. the Jaguar I-Pace is built by Magna, uh, which in Graz, which is a Canadian-Austrian company. Um, I, do, I think increasingly in this world, to, to take Sandra's point about the globalised world, I think increasingly it doesn't matter because, you know, you know, there are very few companies, certainly in the UK, which are in a technical sense, British anyway. I mean, Bentley isn't, Rolls-Royce isn't. Um, you know, they're owned by uh, Volkswagen and BMW. Um, you know, McLaren and Aston Martin have massive stakes owned by uh, Middle Eastern concerns. And I just think that the whole... I don't think it's practical to think, you know, um, that these cars should all have to be designed and engineered and developed and built in their country of origin. Um, and I don't really see what you're losing. I mean, I think as long as they are true to the values of the brand, I just don't think that it matters mm. very much. But, you know, the barber jacket made in China, no, I don't think it would. Mm. I don't think it would trouble me at all. Um, as long as the quality's right, and there's no reason it shouldn't be. Um, I suppose there is something to be said about supporting your own economy or the economy that um, the, co- the company in question is based in. Um, there's perhaps an environmental issue as well. I mean, what is the environmental impact of shipping, a, a, you know, a Toyota manufactured in Japan halfway around the world to Europe when there are plenty of cars built in Europe that would probably do the same job? You know, is there is there a cost there? 
Yes, there is. And I also think that there is, I think that there is a certain, with certain sorts of brands. So I'm thinking about Rolls-Royce. Okay. So Rolls-Royce, um, they're body in white. So the main structure of the car is built by BMW in Munich. It then gets shipped to Goodwood where mm. all the bits that kind of make a Rolls-Royce a Rolls-Royce, you know, all that incredibly intricate woodwork and the, and the leather and the detailing and the finishing and everything else that all get done in Goodwood by craftspeople um using skills that are handed down generation to generation um you know men and women with pencils behind their ears all that sort of stuff um if that was all going on instead in you know somewhere in the far east or in you know the indian subcontinent and the quality was exactly the same Mm. would that make a difference or do you want to think that all that sort of stuff is there's a certain sort of britishness about it i'm in i'm in two minds because part of me does there's a, there is an emotional, subjective part of me which thinks it's nice to think that these skills remain in this country and it's nice to think that um, through cars like that, whose brands are God, built on their, for want of a better word, Britishness, mm. um, that that is still in evidence. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't make, if it doesn't make the car any better, it doesn't make the car any worse. Um I'm not sure that it matters that much. Mm. It's an interesting point. I think um, some UK car makers might point out that there is uh, something about the image of a car manufactured in the UK, a certain type of car that sort of reflects well around the world, in other markets around the world. So there'll be um, buyers in other countries, um, thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away, who are attracted to a british car because it's built in britain and the the heritage and the tradition that goes with it so perhaps that's another point cool britannia cool britannia yeah yeah and others who i'm sure would be put off by a car because it was built in britain um so there we go it's an interesting topic isn't it that's a good listener question Um, so thank you for that one keep them coming across and we'll do many more of them When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.